Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Our guest today is a political strategist, media consultant, and best-selling author based in Florida who has produced political commercials for governors, U.S. Senate candidates, and super PACs. Rick Wilson has written for The Daily Beast, Politico, The New York Daily News, Medium, and is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Everything Trump Touches Dies. His next book, Running Against the Devil, A Plot to Save America from Trump and Democrats from Themselves, will be published on January 14th, 2020. He is also one of the founders of The Lincoln Project, a super PAC that, quote, will be dedicated to defeating President Trump and Trumpism at the ballot box and to elect those patriots who will hold the line. Rick Wilson, welcome to Words Matter. Thank you so much for having me. Now, before we get to your last book or your next book or even impeachment, let's talk about the Lincoln Project. What is it? Who is involved? And without giving away the secret sauce here, tell us as much as you can of the strategy for achieving its goal. There's nothing more dangerous in politics than people who will put country before party and who know all the tricks. And between uh, Steve Schmidt, John Weaver, myself, Reed Galen, and the other folks that are involved in this project, we have been to the rodeo a few times in American politics. And all of us have a principled conservative opposition to Donald Trump. And all of us have a deep concern that if people don't stand up and not only hold Trump to account, but hold the party that has devoted itself now to enabling him as almost its entire mission to account – then we're going to slip into something that doesn't resemble America. We're going to have a country that becomes essentially uh, with one party in service to the personality cult around Donald Trump and then the Trump dynasty following him. And so the Lincoln Project was founded to hark back to some of the more fundamental and profound values that shaped uh, the, the conservatism of all the folks that are involved and to reflect on some of the things we have lost as a party in a country and also to bring a skill set together from a bunch of folks who, again, have been – we have very much been to the rodeo. And while Donald Trump's fans like to imagine he invented politics and that it just happened yesterday, um, the, the long arc of Republican gains from the – essentially from the end of the Bill Clinton era um, until Trump didn't come because of you know screaming talk show hosts on Fox and talk radio. It came a lot of it because of very smart technical folks like us who went out and did the lifting to elect folks from dog catcher up to president. So we're going to put some of those skills to work this year, and uh, and we we hope that Donald Trump will not enjoy the results. So who is your target voter? Well, we, look, we have a lot of different target sets in this in this operation. We're not trying to stay in some cliched lane of, oh, we're only going to talk to never Trumpers. We're going to talk to a lot of different folks. We're going to try to motivate Republicans to remember who they should be and to do the right thing in some places. We're going to try to make sure that that folks who ordinarily feel like they're politically safe in the era of Trump are going to be held to account. We're going to make sure that we apply all the tools and the technology and the targeting systems that are available to a smart, modern super PAC to both 
disrupting Donald Trump's reelection prospects and in that regard, by the way, especially in the vital electoral college states where a very small number of voters made the difference in 2020 or in 2016, excuse me, and where they're going to make a difference again in 2020. We're going to be targeting very tightly and we're going to be looking at how we hold people to account who should be doing their jobs as representatives of their states or their districts, but who are not. So Rick, there's in this room, a lot of rodeos that have been attended. Uh, So let me give you a sense of what I see uh, your challenge as. 53% of Republicans say Donald Trump is a better president than Abe Lincoln. How do you beat that? You know, there is a certain degree to which the hardest core of Trumpism is lost. Those folks aren't Republicans anymore. They are members of a cult. It's Om Shinrikyo, the Japanese suicide cult. It's David Koresh. They are drinking the Kool-Aid. They will never believe that Donald Trump is not this historic figure of pure, perfect light who has come down from heaven to serve us all as the second coming of the Lord. Um, those folks are never going to change, and we're not really trying to talk to those people. There is a vast, squishy middle in this country still. There were a lot of people in 16 who were – Soft Republicans and independents, especially in the swing states, and as we all know, in Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania and Ohio uh, and Florida, who said, you know, I don't can't stand her. He may be crazy, but why not have a little fun with it? Those folks are still in the wind now, and those folks are actually responsible for the Democrats retaking control of the House in 18 because they're disaffected Republicans, they're independents, they're, they're, they're soft Ds who, you know, uh, for a lot of reasons— and the, the long history of Hillary Clinton being made into the perfect demon for the Republican Party is one that we could spend a whole show on. But those folks had a very long degree of pre-programmed hate for Hillary. And even with Trump's flaws, they were like, oh, I can't go with her. I just can't do it. They don't have that now. So those people will be in the wind. Those people are moving. They are not hard voters. Look, the Republican Party still says, oh, it's 80% or 90%. Really, the number's a little bit lower than that. It's somewhere in the 60s and 70s. That's still very high for any candidate, but it's not 100%. It's because of the famous shy Tory effect. People don't want to admit they're Republicans anymore. They're telling pollsters they're independents now. So that shrinkage of the Republican Party, particularly with women, particularly educated voters, particularly suburban voters, presents a very rich target set for us to, to talk to in 2020. You mentioned Hillary being the perfect demon. So will you be as enthusiastic about the mission, whether it's Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, or Elizabeth Warren as the Democratic nominee? Look, there are degrees to which it's easier to make a case on the electoral college map for Joe Biden than it is for Bernie Sanders. I'm not even sure we're going to have Elizabeth Warren to worry about at that point, but Look, we're going to play that as it lays. We're going to see how that works out. We are not trying to tell Democrats how to pick their nominee. We're not trying to tell them how to run their campaigns, except to do them smarter and better and win. We're certainly not trying to give them some lecture on on how to change their ideological take on the world. We're not. That's just not our job. Our job is to defeat Donald Trump. We believe many hands to the capstan here. Many hands make light loads, and we're going to do everything we can to to see to it that Donald Trump is not reelected. And and look, the Democrats still have to do a lot of this work on their own. They still have to make the lift on their own and find the nominee that isn't going to blow out and win 
six states on the coasts of the of the U.S. and lose everywhere else. And that is a challenge right now in terms of some of the chemistry that's out there in the field. You have assembled a really high-powered group of directors of this. I know from campaigns I've done, I never wanted to see you or Steve or Reed or, or John on the other side. I want to ask you about two groups of people. Sure. Um, and tell me if you think, how would you appeal to them? The first is Republican women. Mm-hmm. Uh, 42% of people in the CNN poll uh, out recently approve of the job the president's doing. Right. Well, excuse me, 42% of white women. White women, yeah. How do you appeal to them? And secondly, evangelicals. You've, you've run campaigns where it was completely dependent on getting those people sure. out to vote, and they weren't always reliable Republican voters, but they've become that. What's your appeal, if any, to them? I think evangelicals in the Trump demo. And look, it's always been underestimated about the number of progressive evangelicals out there. It is a meaningful fraction of the of that group. But of Republican evangelicals who have decided that Trump is their golden calf and they're going to ride this thing because of this ongoing sense of cultural and religious grievance and this imagined persecution, although they are the majority or at least the plurality in this country uh, in terms of religious groups. They feel very much as if their every decision is the apocalypse coming to visit upon them. And they feel like Trump is going to be the only thing to save them. He may be a devil, but he's going to be the devil that 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 saves them this once. So I think hard evangelical Republicans are largely lost. We've tried to talk to them in the past. We tried that in 16. And you explained to them that Donald Trump is a whoremonger and a guy who screws porn stars and pays women for sex and is a serial adulterer and a liar and a gambler and runs casinos. If that guy's name was- Did we miss any of the Ten Commandments I, I, there? You know, I'm working- I don't think he actually killed Fred, but you know, you never can but he, but he could and wouldn't he, be prosecuted. Right, yeah. right. Exactly. On Fifth Avenue especially. We've seen that they have, have reached a very strange moral inflection point, and I don't know that they're reachable. And I don't really- I don't care all that much to try to have a theological argument with folks that are stuck on trying to use worldly means to achieve their religious ends in this. I don't think it's necessarily going to be electorally productive. However, I do think there are many people of faith in this country who may have voted for Donald Trump and yet have started to have regrets based on things like Charlottesville, based on things like children put in cages. Um, those don't strike me, and I don't. I know they don't strike a lot of other Christians as particularly meritorious uh, values. So we may be talking to some folks about the way that the hand of Trump in governance is not reflective of of the best values that they claim to espouse. As for suburban women, I think there are two major areas in that, and we're going to dig in much deeper on this thing because look, uh, while all of us have various talents. The thing that all of us have been very good about in our careers is relying on the numbers, the data, the polling, the research, the analytics. So we're going to be looking at in these targeted states, how do you talk? What are the groups of suburban women? We know generically and anecdotally what they're doing, but we need to learn a lot more about where they're going to go in 2020, what motivates them to, to stand against Trump. What motivates them to stay home? What motivates them to vote Democratic? You know, there are a whole spectrum of responses we can get that can lead to the correct political outcomes for us. But there will be a lot of study of that. And I will say this just generically in 30,000-foot view. One of the reasons that a lot of women have walked away from the GOP 
and that they find Donald Trump to be a bridge too far is just the overt cruelty. It's constant. It's never ending. It's a feature of everything he does. Uh, some people say it's the point. Right. And in, in, in fact, that it's a design feature, not a bug. And remember, a lot of these suburban women voters, and Virginia is a great case study of this, they are one of the income earners in the family, and they take all the kids, and they do all the domestic stuff. And it's this, they live in this world where their kids are exposed to things very early and very shockingly sometimes, whether it's porn or violence or racism or abusive behavior. And when they see that, they're like, how do we how do we put a break on this? How do we help our kids not have a life like this? And then there's the president of the United States beating up on a 16-year-old kid this week on Twitter, putting children in cages, you know, grabbing pussies, the whole spectrum of Trump behavior. I think there's a story to be told there, just as I think there's a story to be told in places like Wisconsin and Iowa, where farmers thought, oh, well, we're going to have this amazing new trade position within the world. In fact, they're losing their farms because of Trump's trade war. Or in Pennsylvania, where he promised hundreds of new steel mills, and what do you got? One that started under Obama. So we don't want you to give away tactics or strategy, but let me drill down on that cruelty point, or rather ask a question to, to get there. Let's talk about your message and what is the most powerful message for winning over that target voter that we talked about? Is it that Trump is cruel? Is it that he is corrupt, incompetent, crazy? What's the most powerful message packaged? One of the things about modern politics is that you don't actually have to do just one message. We're going to segment this audience very carefully. We will be talking to people. You know, we will be talking to folks who were promised this industrial revolution that was going to get their jobs back. The guy who voted for Trump in 16 who worked on an auto factory line for 20 years of his life and is now in a call center, he voted for Trump in large measure because he wanted to get back to doing what he loved and was paid 60 bucks an hour for, 40 bucks an hour to do. And it didn't happen. The economy's great on Wall Street and Silicon Valley, but it didn't happen for those folks. So we'll be talking to them. But there's these audiences will be segmented out. And we will be talking to folks in states and in districts that make a difference in not only the 2020 election, but in how Trump is able to continue to get away with some of this stuff in office. So, and again, I don't want to go drill too deeply into the secret sauce of of the data targeting, but suffice it to say, this is not some random anecdotal thing of, hey, let's throw some ads up in Oakland County, Michigan. We're going to be looking very closely at who we talk to. So two more quick questions on the Lincoln Project, and then we want we want to quiz you a little bit on how the hell we got here. Mm-hmm. Um, two things. One is, where are you going to get the money for this? Secondly, do you believe there's power in this message coming from fellow Republicans? And is that one of the reasons to bring this all together? Well, I do think there's power in having folks who have national electoral experience and who have done a full-spectrum set of campaign experiences who know what they're doing. There are a lot of people now – look, the cost of producing digital ads and, and television ads has dropped dramatically. It's, it's asymptotically approaching zero. When I was you know, starting in the business, making a 30-second TV commercial involved a film crew with cameras and developing film and color correcting and ADR and sound. That's why ads cost $20,000, $30,000. And now people knock out ads on their phones and edit them on their iPad. And 
But anybody can do the technical part. Not a lot of people can do the targeting and the creative part and the and integrating all the survey work and the and the and the data into an effective campaign. So that's part of what we bring into this thing is we are very hard people in the in the campaign space. We don't screw around in the campaign space and we're gonna we're gonna bring the pain. Let's talk about impeachment, uh, particularly in light of everything that happened today. Not only are you a Republican, but you know the guy at the center of all of this, Rudy (laughs) Giuliani, uh, and you were involved in his campaigns for mayor back in the 90s. So how do you answer the question, what happened to Rudy? I answer it with the the, the rule that I have initially said flippantly, but it's become an iron law of American political physics. And that is that everything Trump touches dies. And I think Rudy, after the 2008 campaign, just didn't work, just fell apart. It was never – there was no there ever really there. And believe me, I tried to make there to be a there there and there just never was. After that fell apart, I think Rudy, uh, like many people, really wanted some relevance, wanted something else, wanted to make more money, honestly. I mean he's, he's involved in a very, very, very expensive divorce. And I think that he and Trump come from a similar political culture. And that political culture is page six in New York. That culture was all attention is good attention. Tabloid gossip coverage is the coin of the realm in Manhattan back in the 80s and 90s when these guys were coming up. And so I think that temptation with Trump to suddenly be relevant again, to suddenly have the ability to leverage this relationship, make money off of it have have positional power from it, do things that he would no longer really be in a position to do otherwise, was very tempting to him. And it is a legitimate tragedy in many ways. And I've always described Rudy as Batman, even when I first went to work for him. And we talked about this in Inside Rudy's Camp. You know, there was always good Rudy, who he's the good Rudy would get up at three in the morning when a firefighter was injured somewhere and go and sit in the hospital and wait with the family. Bad Rudy would get pissed off and pick fights with homeless groups or whatever. And good Rudy and bad Rudy were always of a piece, but he was tested two times in a meaningful way. The first was during the 90s and the, you know New York was on that precipice in the in the mid 90s and he not always pleasantly and not always nicely turned it around, cleaned it up, set up a lot of the economic conditions that turned New York into this gigantic global powerhouse that it is now. And the second time he was tested was on 9-11, obviously, when an unimaginable tragedy led to a moment where he, on the ragged edge of exhaustion and tension and fear, managed to bring the country together from the podium. And if Rudy had at that moment finished his career, gone into retirement, written books and done business, whatever, They'd name high schools after this guy. They'd name high schools after this guy for a hundred years. He would go down as a hero. And now he is destined to do what all the people who serve Trump do. And he is destined to be humiliated and he's destined to be in legal peril for the rest of his life. And he's probably, he's probably going to be remembered now. Those other things will be the footnote and this will be the defining chapter in his history. I described uh, Rudy earlier today as he's like the defense lawyer in a big case when the prosecution gets up 
to give their closing. In the middle of it, Rudy says, Your Honor, I object. He's not using the best incriminating evidence. So let me take it from here. <laughs> um, it's like, how often can I confess? But uh, Well, I mean, yeah. this, this long-running video confession he's been doing for the last three days and this Twitter confession is truly – I mean, if Rudy was the prosecutor in this case and saw the defendant making those kind of errors – he would go home, smoke a cigar, and have a brandy and just say, let them hang themselves. Yeah. yeah. All right. So now let's talk about, uh, to Joe's point, how we got here. And we really don't have to go all the way back to Lincoln. We can start in the 1980s. How did the Republicans go from the party of Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush to Donald Trump? Well, I have two words for you. And those two words are Roger Ailes. Roger Ailes was the towering genius of American television of the last 75 years, bar none, bar none. He understood the medium. He understood how to to deploy it politically. He understood what worked. He understood the American class structure and the system in America that, that was out there looking for those aspirational things on television, but also for those negative things on television. And the DNA of the Richard Nixon campaign of 72 is present in Donald Trump's campaign in ways that few people have really bothered to acknowledge. But that big versus small, rich versus poor, inside versus outside, black versus white. Long hair versus short long, hair. Right. The filthy hippies versus the, versus the squares. All those things um, that, that defined where Trump and Trumpism – appeared in terms of its iconography and its visual affect and everything else, those were the things that Roger gave us. Roger also gave us the most powerful cable network in history, bar none, that has an enormous siloed influence on on one political party. It has become the single normative value generator and transmitter for whatever the Republican line was for the day for a very long time. But now with Trumpism, in a strange way, he has sort of consumed that super powerful cable network and and made it an adjunct of him personally. The simple two-word answer, like I said, is Roger Ailes. And that's not to say that Roger wasn't a goddamn genius because he was a genius. Plenty of smart people can do bad things. And Roger loved the class warfare element of, of Fox. And Trump, as a reality TV star, grasped that instantaneously and turned that into an amazing sort of riff. It's it's the hobo's idea of a billionaire, as someone once said of Donald Trump, was 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 quite true. But Trump understood he could play that kid from Queens, made good uh, act to the hilt, and then call everyone else the elitists. So I think a lot of people watching politics think smart people like like you guide the party and, and, and move <laughs> in one direction or the other. Everything about the changing American demographics that anyone could see plainly, you don't have to be a political genius, said the Republican Party has to move and, and has to become more modern and has to, on social issues, lighten right. up a little bit. And they've done exactly the opposite. Is this a just a self-destructive force? Uh, it, it is. I mean, look, 
people can disagree with George W. Bush on a lot of different issues, particularly after 9-11. But it's, I think it's very telling to go back and look at our campaign in 2000 and think about what it was. It was about education. It was about immigration reform. It was an extension of the old kinder, gentler. And he wouldn't run as some East Coast liberal, but he ran as a guy who was in touch with a broad, changing country. You know, George Bush got over 30% of the Hispanic vote. That says something. You know how he got it? Worked for it. Went out in the community, learned Spanish, did the work, wanted to do immigration reform in a meaningful way, treated Hispanic citizens and Hispanic immigrants with respect and courtesy, not as enemies of the people. And like I said, while that while that idea that the pre-9-11 George Bush could – the counterfactual of that is interesting, like where things would have gone. But again, that also didn't serve the Fox ecosystem that Roger built. They need conflict. They need hate. They need division. And folks like me, we all got together when Barack Obama won in 2008 and said, well, let's have an agonizing reappraisal. What did we do wrong? How do we fix this? I think they called it the autopsy. It was in fact called the autopsy. And there were several autopsies, some that are less public than others, some that are more public than others. One of the autopsies was we've got to get our shit together on digital and social media and all these other things, which we did. But we didn't listen to any of the advice of very, very smart people who can run the numbers and do the demographics. There are only so many 65-year-old white dudes with a high school education in this country and they're dying like flies. There are a lot, and there will be a lot more young Hispanic families in Florida, Texas, Arizona, Georgia, North Carolina, Nevada, Virginia. The demographic change in this country, the great fear that was stoked by a lot of the racists in the 60s was that blacks were out of control and they're going to take over and they're going to outbreed us and all this, that old blood and soil horror show. And they were all strung out on heroin. Right. And they're all criminals. They're all murderers. You know, that, that thing that we've just simply replaced that in the Trump rhetorical portfolio with, with Mexicans or Guatemalans or Hondurans. And, and that horrifying division that they want and that they, they enjoy, I think flies in the face of, of the propositional nature of America the one country that where Republicans and Democrats all agreed for generations that you could come here and become an American. There was nothing in your DNA if you were from Tibet that prevented you from becoming an American or South Africa or Papua New Guinea or anywhere. That propositional nature that if you came here, the magic of this country and the power of our constitution and our system of laws and our, and our welcoming society – well, we've abandoned that as a party. It's gone now. The basic message is if you're from a shithole, you're not welcome. If you're from Norway and you've got blonde hair and blue eyes, come on down. The, the message is if you helped us as a translator or an interpreter during the war, screw you. But if you look like a Trump's Aryan wet dream, come on over. It's an astoundingly overt racial appeal. I know for a fact it's a dead end. But it's got an appeal right now to people who have grown up in this grievance culture that Fox and Trump have created. Yeah, I remember looking at, if my memory serves right, um, George W. Bush got, 
I think in the high 30s of Hispanics. Yeah, I think Hispanics. it was 37 percent. 37, 38. Yeah, yeah. And I remember uh, Romney, if you looked at his numbers and if he'd gotten to 30 percent, he right. would have beaten Obama. He got something like 27 or right. 28. And then Trump wins on immigration and is going to run in 2020 on building the wall and immigration. Mm -hmm. And here come the caravans. Um I'm let, let the listeners know I'm shrugging my shoulders here. I don't. <laughs> I, I don't even know how to formulate the question. He's caught in a bit of a vice. On the one hand, he's got this this demo at his base that have discovered that anti-immigration sentiment is a great way to disguise that an awful lot of them are actual goddamn racists. It's a great way to disguise it because the fundamental thing is the they coming over the border are not like us. And they can never be us because there's a genetic or racial difference with them to us. And we've got to preserve the white race. Again, this is primarily these 60-plus high school-educated males. Now, the problem for the Democrats is an awful lot of those guys are union voters in dying Rust Belt states in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Wisconsin, Michigan, Iowa, Minnesota. And those guys – for years, Republicans like me helped steal them away. And we helped steal them away by doing things like being the tough party on foreign powers, on, on terrorism. We were the tough guys. The, the Democrats were going to sell out to the commies and the terrorists. We did it on guns. We did it on the things that have upset and troubled these guys for a long time, the changing economy. And so Trump has a narrow base that requires more and more. They have to chase the dragon all the time on this. They have to give them more and more lurid conspiracies and more and more crazy promises and more and more evil characters to blame because now it's not good enough that there's random stochastic noise of people coming over the border. It has to be caravans. And then the caravans have to be MS-13 caravans. And then they have to be MS-13 caravans carrying Ebola. And then they have to be carrying terrorists. All the drama and all the, the revving with these people there's a dopamine fix those folks get from this. And the downside of it is for Trump, a lot of other people find it repulsive. A lot of those suburban women we talked about earlier find it repulsive and rightly so. So you write everything Trump touches dies. I want to ask you how far that extends, particularly to two places. One is legal and one is political. Does that mean that the office of the presidency, the norms of the office of the presidency and our understanding of executive power and the executive branch is dying, will die, and will be forever changed. And does that extend to the party? Can the party be saved? Or as one of your fellow Lincoln Project founders said, does it need to be burned to the ground? Well, first, let me answer the executive power question because – I'm old enough to remember when Republicans pulled their hair out when Barack Obama used executive orders. It was an unconstitutional right. affront. It was pure evil. It was King Obama the first. It was all this drama. I'm old enough to remember states' rights. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? And and because of that, there are two potential outcomes. One is you end up with Trump accreting so much power that in the second term. He continues to abuse it in so many ways. And we basically end up, and I don't mean to put too fine a point on this, with a Trump dynasty where they will abuse as much power as they need in that office to continue to hold that office. 
The second outcome, which Republicans can't seem to get their head around, is that someday a you know President Ocasio Cortez sits down and says, "Well, the things they've done were so evil and so wrong and so bad for so long, and I know that we should probably have votes about this in Congress, but I've got to fix this and I've got to use executive power." And when when the shoe is on firmly on the other foot, I predict my former party members will lose their damn minds. But the abuse of power, as Jenny Holzer once said, comes as no surprise. And it's tempt- it's a temptation. It's hard for anybody to resist. And if you're a Democratic president down the line, don't you think to yourself, well, as long as I can hold my people in the Senate, screw them. I'm going to do what I want. It, power is very tempting that way. And I, I fear for the country in either of those two directions. So I, I hope you'll take this in a positive way as one hack to another. Uh, the problem is not going to be solved by hacks. I think you can be directionally important. Give me two, three, four, as many you can think of names of Republicans who you think can lead you back to the promised land. People that maybe we don't, that I don't know about. You know what? There's a there's a kid in Texas named Heath Mayo, out of nowhere, that founded this group called Principles First. No, doesn't have a damn dime, but he just said, I can't do this. I can't live my life this way. I can't call myself a conservative and engage in things that are statist. There's a kid named Benny Belvedere, runs a Republican climate change group and cares about the environment, cares about the natural world. You know, and it, it's the least popular damn thing you could do right now, okay? There's no traction to it at all in terms of the Republican Party itself. But there are not a lot of heroes in this in this thing right now. And, and there are not a lot of people elected who have found that moment where their courage could overcome the terror of Trump and his base and where their fear of losing office was less than their fear of losing their country. Do you see anyone in the Senate right now that has any promise? Hope springs eternal um, for Mitt Romney, who should recognize the great power he holds in his hands. But he's such a modest character in so many ways I don't think he he does. But the Senate right now has become a profoundly disappointing experience because they are the ones who supposedly were the holders of this vast institutional power and this vast institutional dignity. And Mitch McConnell wants to hold his majority and will do whatever it takes to keep Donald Trump sending out those emails to keep his people in money. So you're the general consultant political guru for Cory Gardner. And now you've got to answer honestly. Sure. What's your strategy for getting reelected? Embrace Trump or push Trump away? Push Trump away. It's Denver. And Boulder suburbs, 65% of the vote in Colorado is going to come out of those sub- suburbs. And those are the suburbs that in 12, 14, and 16, consistently moving toward Democrats, there's not enough red hat Bubba vote in, in outside of those areas. If the Democrat rolls it up, especially if it's Hickenlooper, if, if he rolls it up, he doesn't have to play much outside of the, the 11 counties that surround those two metros to win. But so how would you how would you tell him to vote on impeachment? I would tell him to vote in favor of impeachment. And but I would or on, on the trial. Right. But I would tell him but I think of the first thing I would tell him to do is to have a shit fit about the trial. 
to go out there and say, I want to support this president, but I must, as a as an American, as a citizen, as a senator, see all the evidence. It has been withheld from us, and that's not fair to you, Mr. President. And then when the Trump people say, I'll go, yourself, then he says, okay, I have to do it. Sorry. Look, Martha McSally, Susan Collins, none of these people are looking at the reddest of states anymore. I mean, look, even Joni Ernst. I, even and, Tom Tillis. Even Tom Tillis. And- Tom Tillis had better keep his eye very closely on the numbers of Hispanic voters in North Carolina because that number is changing by the minute. And they are becoming a powerful force, including out in Western North Carolina. And I told Morris Davis, Colonel Davis, the other day that he was running against Mark Meadows. I'm like, you're in a tough Republican district, but man, there's a whole lot of Hispanics in that district now. A whole lot. And being able to, to turn those folks up and turn those folks out could be a game changer. But look, Corey's situation in Colorado, man, it's tough. It's He's a good candidate. I will got to give Corey this. He's got hustle. He works hard. But he's also been very fortunate the last couple times. And he's going to need to have something to bring people in Colorado that isn't like, I'm going to try to do an infrastructure bill. Because they're going to care about this. They're going to care about Trump. And they're going to see him. And if Hickenlooper's smart, and the Democrats are smart, they will be pounding Corey hard on a whole spectrum of things about Trump that play in Colorado, including immigration. So you said if the Democrats are smart in Colorado, give us what you can on your new book that's uh, (laughs) coming out soon. How do the Democrats beat Trump? Part of what the Democrats need to do, and there are two gigantic lessons and look, part of this book is to give them another indictment of Trump. And I, if everything Trump touches dies was tough on Trump, this is scorched earth nuclear fire into a pool of acid, then some lava to go on top of it. The second part of it is the two big fundamental rules. First is this election is over in 35 states. We know how California is going to vote. We know how Massachusetts is going to vote. I know how Alabama and Mississippi are going to vote. I know how Texas is going to vote. And those aren't stretch states. We know that, 35 states. There are 15 states that are in the general pool and maybe six of those that really are going to be where the race gets decided. Hunt where the game is. Fight where the fight is. If I see the Democratic nominee doing rallies in California, they deserve to be slapped upside the head for malpractice. If they're doing anything except raising money in California, New York, or Massachusetts, they're out of their damn minds. They need to be playing in the suburbs, in the swing states. They need to be spending all day, every day, in Pennsylvania and Ohio and Michigan and Wisconsin and Minnesota and North Carolina and Virginia, which, by the way, is trending blue very swiftly, but it ain't done yet. It ain't over yet. They need to play in that place. They need to play in Arizona. They need to get out there, and they need to play in my home state of Florida, which is the you know the Ur swing state, the ultimate prize, 29 electoral college votes. It's the big fish in the whole game. And Democrats have a terrible problem in Florida. It's that the Republican Party there, which I am proud – at the time, I was proud to help build it. It is a good party. It is a weapon. They know how to win statewide races. They're really damn good at it. And Trump knows – He has certain advantages north of the I-4 corridor among white male Democrats. And that is Bubba in 
Gadsden County, Florida, is a registered Democrat, but he does not like abortion, and he loves guns. And so the Democrats who were down in Miami saying, seize the firearms and all that, Trump knows that. They get that. That's an old model. That model's been built out for years. That's how Republicans win statewide races in the state of Florida. Democrats are going to have a hard row to hoe there if they don't understand that that state is a big, complex mess, and you can't gamble just on winning Broward, Dade, and Palm Beach County. You can't put all your eggs in that basket. Democrats need to do the bulk of the work, to your point. But how do you respond to, you say, go where the game is? And one of those states um, may or may not be my home state of Georgia. But where the game is also may have a thumb on the scale where they're doing things like purging 300,000 voters overnight after yesterday the federal judge in Georgia Mm -hmm. Georgia said, okay, that's fine, and is reminiscent of what happened in the gubernatorial race. So go where the game is, and the Democrats need to do the the heavy lifting and the work, but they're also dealing with this thumb-on-the-scale type behavior from the GOP. What say you to the notion of of the game being somewhat rigged in some of those places? Look, I think I think that those things are real, but they are still at base marginal. It doesn't matter if if you win so big that they can't. It doesn't matter if they cheat, then you're doing it right. And that's one of those lessons where you have to just you have to have a three pronged approach to it. First off, Democrats need to get about a two hundred and fifty million dollar legal fund together. Instead of Mike, Mike Bloomberg and Tom Starr burning money in a bonfire, God forbid they should like go to these states and help litigate these cases on ballot access, like in Florida with, for, with Amendment 4 for felons voting rights, or in Georgia on the purge, or Wisconsin on the purge. So they need to go out there and litigate these things on the one level. The second level they need to be working on is the fundamental thing of, guess what? People get taken out the voter rolls. They also can get put back on. I know it's a pain in the ass, but going out and recruiting voters is a sure sign. It is a fundamental sign of whether a party is healthy or not. They need to be out registering voters, identifying voters, talking to them, communicating with them. That is that is 101 blocking and tackling. And in some of these states, the Democrats have not notoriously run effective statewide. I mean, Georgia Democratic Party is not notoriously an effective party for doing things like voter reg, and they need to get better at it, and they need to get better at it fast. Obama proved you could do it and make real differences very quickly. So that's something that they need to think about. And the third pillar of that is you've got to be doing political comms to the people that are being disenfranchised. You've got to be telling African Americans and Hispanics who are the most likely folks in these purges, they're trying to stop your vote. You need to re-register. You need to do the work. Again, those things are largely... They're real, okay, but they're not they're not 50 points real. They're not 20 points real. They're one or two points and in terms of the final outcomes. But that's not not to say they don't need to be addressed and you don't need to strap on the problem and get and get to it. So let me finish up Rick by saying it's been it's been a little odd over the last 3 years to be sitting across the table with never trumpers and agreeing on almost <laughs> everything. And it took the Kavanaugh hearing to remind me that there are real differences between how you approach things and how I approach things. So um, I guess my final thought is I know Democrats are going to work very hard. I applaud what you're doing with the Lincoln Project. 
and I look forward to the day that we can start screaming at each other again. Because it, it was fun. I'd love to go back and scream about marginal tax rates, man. Yes. Good times. Yes. Good times. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, we enjoyed having you. And uh, remember, if you need to read a Rick Wilson book right now, today, go out and buy everything Trump touches dies. But if you can wait till the new year, there's a new one coming, which I think you'll enjoy just as much. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Rick. You bet, Kate. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers. 